Connecting Dots is brought to you by Fixed Cost Financial, the home of fixed cost investing. It's better because it's simple and works. Break the mold. Be different. So this morning when I got into the office, you had a comment about um, Amazon. What was that all about? Again, let's, let's just chat about that because I thought it was fascinating. Sure. So there's a website that I, I browse occasionally. It's a, think of it like a, a Reddit type website where people post news articles and things and it's called Hacker News. Okay. And it's um, a kind of culmination of news articles and stories and stuff going on inside Silicon Valley and the tech industry in general. And um, there was a article up here on, from BuzzFeed, which rarely even ranks on the site just due to the lack of detail or, or interesting information that gets posted on that site. And it was a, Buzz, a BuzzFeed article that says Amazon shareholders rejected employees' call to respond to climate change. So I clicked on it because I was just curious what the comments were. As as that's most of the content on the site is not really the articles; it's the, the commentary that goes on around the articles. And you have kind of I don't know um, interesting series of comments about people complaining one way or the other about sustainability, how Amazon doesn't actually really care, how they're phoning it in. But the, the interesting thing I thought was there was a lack of discussion about the fact that shareholder resolutions are either designed to fail or they're designed to succeed from the get-go. They're not really designed, you know, they, they usually serve a political purpose as far as, you know, curtailing public opinion about the company or something like that. And um, anyway, so I, I just did a couple little bit, a couple little searches on the internet and found the most recent number that I could find that only 27% of retail investors bother to vote. And I thought that kind of begs the question about if the populace, you know, at large isn't actually voting their shares and the institutions by large part definitely are. Can you really complain much if you don't vote for what's going on? Connecting dots is for educational use only. Investment performance is not guaranteed. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation or needs. Nothing should be construed as an individual recommendation. Due to our extensive holdings and that of our clients, you should assume that we have a position in all companies discussed and thus a conflict of interest should be assumed. Yeah, and that's one of the things I want to bring up here at Fixed Cost Financial because we empower our clients with fractional share ownership. I vote the shares. I tell people that right up front because they can do that. They can opt out, but we vote because they don't vote. And um, I make no bones about it. We tend to vote against the um, board of directors. We vote against compensation and we vote against a lot of these uh, very wackadoodle uh, shareholder uh, initiatives that are not beneficial to the financial well-being of the shareholder. Yeah, exactly. So if, if 27% of retail inv investors even bother to vote, you know, it, that that really only means that people that own individual shares, because most people own securities through other vehicles, mutual funds, ETFs, and things like that. And because of that, they don't have any voting rights typically or very limited depending on, you know, how the company actually does it. Well, that's the thing that a lot of people don't understand. I've, and again, I do a lot of networking, a lot of talking to people all day long. And I ask them, you know, how do you do you like to vote your shares? I, you know, I set it up, obviously, 
for a couple different reasons. You know, hey, listen, have you voted your shares? The bottom line is I do this in a way, and I'm not articulating it very well, and people will say, uh, no, I've never voted my shares. Or they'll say, oh, yeah, no, I vote against things. In other words, what they don't do is say, you can't. You know, the, the, you, I set it up for them to say, yes, I vote, or no, I don't. But the actual answer is, I can't vote on those resolutions because they're through a mutual fund or an ETF. Yeah, exactly. And I, I know that sounds mean. That's like saying, have you stopped beating your wife, yes or no? Well, obviously, no matter how you answer, you're, you're screwed. But a person who you know would answer right would say, I've never beat my wife in the first place, right? I'm not going to answer yeah, exactly. yes or no. So I have literally never met anybody who, I mean, literally, I have never met anybody, and maybe one or two at an institutional setting, who said what I just said, um, I, you can't vote on those kind of things by way of a uh, mutual fund or ETF. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I put up a little comment on the Hacker News um, article, and I mentioned that basically, you know, these resolutions are, they just get rubber stamped by the large fund managers and executives at the fund companies and the large individual shareholders of those companies, you know, companies like Facebook, where I believe Zuckerberg still has a, has a, uh, a super majority of shares where he can basically approve or disapprove of any resolution that comes across his desk due to their uh, shareholder uh, voting rights structure. And, you know, it's just, it's unfortunate because retail investors aren't, aren't engaged in the companies that they actually own. And then on top of it, the big institutional guys trounce them regardless of what they have to say. So it's just a sad situation of um, if you don't vote, you probably won't get much done in the first place. But at the same time, then you just get disinterested and you just delegate it out to the big guys. And, you know, that can have some deleterious effects on how companies are run. I mean, I, people whine and complain about things all the time. And it's like, well, you know, if, if you didn't bother to go vote, then I guess you don't, you know, you, do you really have a right to complain? I mean, it's not like democracy where these companies are directly taxing you <laughs> and you didn't vote. It's, you know, you own the company and you didn't vote. It's like, it's kind of part of your shareholder responsibility, I would say. Do you have that item that you wrote up on your screen that you can actually read it? Yeah, yeah, I do. Okay, read, read it because I thought it was really well written. Sure. So I said, um, most shareholder resolutions are total jokes that get rubber stamped by the large fund managers and executives and large individual shareholders who actually vote their shares. Despite increased access due to ubiquitous internet um, availability, only 27% of retail investors even bother to vote. Plus, with an increase, uh, increasing concentration of assets owned or managed by a small group of giant fund companies, this continues to become a bigger problem where the retail investors have little to no say. And I thought that kind of succinctly addressed what, we, what we've been discussing here. But then I added on this this other item because some of the discussion in here was kind of general outrage at how companies are run and this type of thing. And it, this is kind of an indicator that it's part of a bandwagon you've talked about for a long time. I said, check out the AFL-CIO pay, executive pay watch. Can you imagine retail investors approving executive compensation to the rate of 200 times or even 5,900 times in the case of Weight Watchers? median employee pay. Those executive compensation votes usually pass without much more than a squeak from a couple of small investors or activist fund managers who eventually get trounced when it comes time for a vote. And I've, I've said it, I ended it by saying that even if it's seemingly pointless, 
you should always read the proposals and vote. It's also a great way to learn and get a sense of what's actually going on at the companies that you're invested in. I thought it was really well written. And yeah, I have talked about the AFL-CIO pay watch for years. And I'm going to be really blunt with you. The, the rancor, the talk, the promotion of that has gone down dramatically in the last few years. It's almost as if the AFL-CIO is in bed with a lot of these major corporations because they still have the executive pay watch, but they don't have the, you got to be kidding me, approach on the website. It's more, you know, it's more like, it's very milk toast. Geez, do you really think it's fair? You know, it's the buttercup and snowflake approach rather than the screaming in your face um, approach where you got to be kidding me. You know, it's, it, the, you yeah. can read the tone on that. But well, yeah, I mean, I've talked about it for years. I am a hardcore, um, fiscally conservative. I, and I really do believe in shareholder rights, all that kind of stuff, um, because executives are employees and the board of directors is supposed to be looking out for the shareholders, not the executives. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the tone has changed, I think, just because the unions in general are depressed and you know they don't have any access. They don't have any influence in almost any of these companies anymore. Um, I mean, the only companies with any unions are just major old school manufacturing companies and in, in the government. So, you know, they do this as a public service. And I think it's great because you can see, like I said, 5,900, like eight times median employee, uh, employee average uh, median employee compensation for Weight Watchers. How did, how does that, I mean, there's multiple questions that can be, you know, t discussed there, but just, wow, that's, that's insane. So, you know, these companies, they don't, people don't unionize anymore. And because of that, these companies don't have the teeth that they used to, I guess. There was a fellow who was the head of the Tampa Police, uh, Police Benevolent Association, the union, and a fellow by the name of Bob Sheehan. And I remember Bob said something, and I never forgot it. We were in his office, and he's a great guy. He was a detective and uh, wound up going full-time at the PBA. Really liked Bob and haven't talked to him in 170 years. Bob said, all unions are the outgrowth of bad management. And we had a really neat discussion one day for about an hour and a half, two hours. And he's right. I, I also brought up, I said, yeah, well, the problem, you get a union in, and when a union goes bad, then you can't get them out. And he goes, well, you know, there's goods and bads to everything, and that is the problem. But it looks like a lot of cities and states and counties all across the country, no matter who you are, they got the unions out. <laughs> they're done so even when you have bad management you can't get it's really hard to organize now yeah yeah it's um it's unfortunate and you know it, like everything i mean it goes both ways and you know we talked about before a couple couple days ago or a week ago about you know unions as they're implemented in the in currently in the united states are viewed as a, as a cancer but you know they actually have existed all over the place and in, in different contexts for various different purposes i remember one of the things you discussed um was uh old-fashioned like farmer co-ops and how how those worked and you know they serve their purpose especially you know as far as um kind of getting average employee compensation at a level that's not so just out of the stratosphere compared to the um the executives you know yeah i mean years ago you had farmers all across the midwest and having grown up in wisconsin i knew this stuff and i also have done the research on it because i've had a lot of clients who have sold property in the midwest and moved to florida and i've managed their money for them and they still had you know, farm interests and had uh, leases and everything else. And the way it used to work is, I mean, you literally had 
farmers get together and uh, they pull their resources and you had a levelization of uh, income. And without getting into all the details, but the guys that ran the thing, they were they were part of the farm organization. I mean, nobody was making a, a, a giant killing. It was really, you know, people working together. But one of the things I want to bring up, just a kind of a sidebar, I don't want to forget it. There's been a lot of uh, shareholder initiatives and a lot of demands by employees that employees should get a seat on the board of, of directors. And this is something that's really dangerous. Um, you've got some folks out there, not only in New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania and California, especially California has, has got a real problem with this because, and even in Washington, but what California has wanted to do, they want to pass a law that says, um, employees, employees can have up to 50% of the seats on a board of directors. Here's the problem with it. This is like saying, and this is no joke. This is like saying, at least 50% of the members of the House of Representatives have a right to be in the U.S. Senate. Wait, these are two totally, a board of directors represents shareholders. Employees are not shareholders. They're employees, okay? That's the reason why you have management, you have your board of directors, and you have your employees. And if the employees don't have a voice by way of a union, the place to get that voice is not on the board of directors. You can influence shareholders who in turn can vote for board of directors. You cannot put employees and employee representatives on the board of directors. You can't do that. You can have people as non-voting participants, you know, that kind of a thing. You want to have people who are in the in these meetings, you know, giving ideas and that, but you it is a it's it's no different than Zuckerberg having a company where shares of stock are owned, but I can't vote on things. Or if I do vote, he gets the right to have a super vote and 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 blow it out. Same thing with Snapchat. The SEC has dropped a ball on some of these things, and it's really sad. And going back to what you were saying, people are talking about climate change. You're talking about lots of things. How about talking about executive compensation? That is yeah, just that, that's my biggest pet peeve. Is you know when when a, when an executive's you know total comp package is you know 200 or more times higher than the median employee's uh, income, you have such a wage disparity there. You question the value that that CEO brings to the table. And we've discussed this before. I mean, most CEOs in major companies, especially after they've been founded and you know, they've had a, a few turnovers, they're professional CEOs. You know, they, they bring them in or they bring them up through, through the ranks. And, you know, it's just a job like anything else. They have higher pay because they have more responsibility and that sort of thing. But it's not like they're being rewarded for founding the company or doing some amazing thing. And, you know, a lot of this is just completely blown out of proportion when you when you count these, you know, uh, sweetheart stock options and, and, and different pay packages that the, these boards of directors come up with to compensate these guys. Um, you know, the, probably the worst possible one is, is pay and, and options packages based on stock price performance, which, you know, a theoretical standpoint makes sense because you're, you're, you know, the purpose of the board is to represent the shareholder and the shareholder's primary interest is share, uh, is share price, you know, as long as you don't kill the company for the purpose of share price. But that's ultimately what you end up getting a lot of the cases, very short term thinking 
and short-term, um, the short-time horizon actions taking place by executives to pump up their options. And then, you know, four, eight, 10 years later, they're out of the job, they're retired, doing whatever they're doing. And then the company, the guy that comes in afterwards to clean it up, he's got a, a mess to deal with because they sacrificed long-term strategic plans for short-term profits and, and, and gains and, you know, it's just it, things become a mess. A perfect example of that is GE as of late. You've just got people getting involved in businesses that were, you know, short term, very profitable, but they didn't have the expertise to be able to manage things like their um, long term care business. And it's completely imploded the company. Absolutely. One of the things, you know, if anybody wants to look this up online, look up Abigail Disney. She's a filmmaker and she's a self-proclaimed activist. The way she said what she said was wrong. But she criticized, for example, Bob Iger, who is in his I-G-E-R. Um, he's the CEO of Disney. He was paid last year $65.6 million in compensation. And she was on, for example, um, I think it was uh, CNBC Squawk Box. And she said that, you know... I think, in fact, I can get the quote here. She says, if your CEO salary is at the seven, six, and 500 times uh, the median workers pay, there is nobody on earth. Jesus Christ himself isn't worth 500 times his median uh, workers pay. So she was able to say something to get a lot of publicity. Obviously, that was one of those things that just, you know, holy cow, people said that. She then, a spokesperson for Disney, said that Iger is paid 90% based upon performance and he's delivered exceptional value for shareholders, okay? And that Disney's capitalization and growth has grown exponentially over the years and it's now worth $75 billion. He's gone from $24 to $132 a share. Now, here's the thing. With that, you have to have context and that is executive compensation based upon performance and stock options goes back to law changes that took place when Bill Clinton was president of the United States. Nobody knows that. It's just like during Bill Clinton, that's when we repealed Glass-Steagall. Nobody knows that. We used to have a separation of investment banking and banking and insurance and stock brokerage. It was all split up. We combined all that because everybody at the time said the Japanese were taking over the world financially and we had to compete with them. It's the same thing with cars. We had a lot of issues. Nobody paid attention to what was going on in China. And boy, you know, that has now been the big thing. But Here's the thing. The problem is when you pay somebody stock options based upon stock price, the big thing is you have an incentive to manipulate your numbers. And that's what we had with Arthur Anderson. And you go back to Enron and we can go through all of the companies back in the 90s that went through all these accounting scandals, then you have, of course, and you have all of the laws that went into effect as a result of that, trying to fix a problem that Congress created with Clinton all the way back to his administration on stock options. So when you have the uh, Sarbanes-Oxley laws, those are nothing more than designed to fix a problem that Congress created themselves. Here's the thing. You, if you judge a company, I judge a company on one single thing. Do they make money? And so if you make money, you have a couple things to do with it. That's called a profit, right? 
After all of your expenses, do you have a profit? If you have a profit, what do you do with it? You put it into research and development for more marketing. Do you pay your employees? Do you give your executive a bonus? But if you're a shareholder, the one thing you want is a dividend. And so when you look at companies that have ongoing increasing dividends, you look at companies where the pay compensation is fairly in line. It's gross, but fairly in line. Those are companies I think people should be looking for. But you have these shareholder activists oh no, we got to talk about green this or green that or whatever. And you're missing the point. 60, if, if Iger was paid 5 million or 10 million, that'd be great. But imagine if they took that other money and actually did something that these activists found beneficial, like, I don't know, maybe more solar energy or more solar research or something. Or just increased employee pay. Or employee pay. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the biggest thing. I mean, pay your employees more. I mean, if, if the most valuable commodity at any, at any company is the actual workforce then why does the top guy on the lincoln log why does he why is he why is he the guy that gets the most reward for what ultimately ends up being the whole machine working together best i mean you know this kind of sounds you know crazy and you know i'm sure some people will lose their minds and then you know uh, socialist talk or whatever but it's true i mean you know you, you can't an entire organization requires a coordination of a lot of people and sure the executive demands and requires to be paid you know more and you know a lot more but it doesn't need to be a thousand times more or 500 times more than the median employee. I mean, at, at that point, it's just kind of demeaning to the, to the average employee, I would say. Well, here, I just, I came up with an idea. I did a quick number. If, let's say you paid Iger $15 million. Do you think that would be a fair wage for him? Yeah. Okay. So the other $50 million is put into a pool. And then what you do is at Disney, you have an evaluation system for every employee other than an executive, right? Your, your, your hourly wage employees. They have, let's say, a, uh, a an annual review. Would, are you with me so far? Sure. Okay. So let's say the annual review is on a scale of zero, you suck, to 10, you're the greatest thing in the world. So far, so good? Sure. Now, I'm going to give all the employees who have a nine and a 10, these are super employees, they get to, they get to go into a lottery. You with me? Yeah, absolutely. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take $50 million, I'll divide it by, uh, let's see. What I do, let's say real quickly, 50, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3. I'm going to take $50 million, divide it by 250. Yep, I was right. I'm going to award 250 people who are 9 and 10 evaluation, okay? Every year, we're going to give them a bonus, a one-time bonus. It'd be $200,000. How many people's lives would be dramatically influenced, their families, their children, everybody, if you awarded $50 million bonus, $200,000 to 250 people who got top ratings, but we picked them by way of a lottery. Once you win, you're permanently out of it. And next year, they do it again, year after year after year, if they got that. How many people would go to work for Disney? You would have people in line begging to work for minimum wage jobs or higher jobs just to do something like that. I mean, these oh, are kind absolutely. of things nobody thinks of. Nobody. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I was, you're talking about you know, if you make a profit, you should, what you should do with it. And here's, here's an interesting example. The company Live Nation, they do concerts, they own Ticketmaster, they, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's concert that. venues and stuff. The CEO is Michael Rapino. Oh yeah, that guy. $70,615,000 a year. Yep. That was his total comp for last year. That is 2,893 times the median employee's compensation. 
So that's that's pretty egregious. I mean, I would say that's that's pretty that's pretty bad, especially since it doesn't look like he's even the founding CEO. No, he's not. But the the worst part about it is this is the same company that lost 147 almost 148 million dollars last year. Or I'm sorry, that was last quarter. So 70 million of that was the executive's pay. Here's the thing, I, you know, in half of your losses in one quarter is, is your is your CEO's pay. Uh, what's you, go, how do you how do you pay an executive that high? You know, what's the reasoning behind paying somebody that much if you're still losing that much money and you've been a publicly traded company since 2005? How how is that a thing? I mean, I understand you you make the argument that oh well, you know, we're we're losing money now, but we plan to do do, do whatever. This is a company that went public in December of 2005. It looks like, and they still aren't making a prof but what's going on it's it's fraud i you know i don't care what anybody says it comes down to in my opinion fraud it does people can say oh you shouldn't say that no it's fraud it's fraud this and and don't get me wrong the sec they got their hands filled my gosh if you go to their enforcement section and very rarely does a day go by where i don't go to the department of justice and look at the enforcement press releases i go to the sec i look at their enforcement press releases i go to the uh, financial industry regulatory association known as finra i look at their press releases well all enforcement actions the number of people that are just completely screwing the pooch on you know ponzi schemes and false reporting public disclosure failures all day long but what I do notice, the bigger you are, the more insulated you are from everything. And that's just the way it is. You know that, I know that. Money buys a justice for the accused. Yeah, I just kind of pulled up some additional numbers here. And as far as Live Nation goes, that was one quarter that I looked at. But as far as, at least according to the number I have here for the year 2017, they lost $6 million for the year on revenue of... Uh, Ten billion dollars. If you didn't pay your executives so much, you you could have eked out a profit. <sighs> I mean, I would say, uh, you know, the, there's all kinds of interesting things you could discuss about that, but it's just fascinating that that type of behavior is allowed to continue. Well, here's the thing. Here here's the bottom line. You you said earlier that a person, um, a company's biggest resource is their people. I think we both would agree on that. No matter what, no matter what, right? Sure. And. I'm going to kind of just spitball with this. One of the things you and I've talked a lot about is Uber uh, spending so much money, same thing with Google and others, uh, trying to get artificial intelligence, self-driving vehicles, right? Yes, and to, to replace employees. To replace employees. So kind of just spitball with this with me. You will never be able to take technology and replace all of your employees. You're not going to do it. And when you are an employee in a position where you're now just pond scum because I'm just in a position waiting to be replaced. You don't give a damn about things, do you? So I think one of the problems that we have in the nation is that we've got too much focus on what can technology do to replace people as opposed to what can technology do to enhance what people do. I mean that really sincerely. No, absolutely. And, and so this is not something that is, you know, kumbaya, uh, Tony Robbins, let's all drink the Kool-Aid and all that kind of nonsense. It, it literally is your people are your greatest resource. You shouldn't put them out to pasture. You got people who are struggling out there. I know I do. We just had a confluffle with when we were getting ready to do this. 
Technology is hard. It's changing fast. It's you've, you've got to deal with things, but it's how you, hey, this is new. This will help you help us. But if you, if this is going to help me make you more money and I don't make any more, what do I give a shit? I mean, I'm being dead serious. No, I think that's, no, that's the problem. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Why should I force myself to learn? Uh, you know, listen, I'm just going to fog a mirror. I got five more years to collect my pension and I'm out of here. Screw you. I'm not getting a pay raise. Why should I learn this stuff? I, I see this all the time. Yeah. I mean, a good example is this company as of the numbers that are on Wikipedia for probably 2017. They have 8,800 full-time employees. So big company. If the CEO took a pay cut to $20 million, I know that's a horror. So $50 million in savings. Wait a minute, $20 million. That is, I mean, it doesn't even get you in some country clubs. I mean, that's just chump change, right? Yeah, right. Um, so you take a pay cut of $50 million. You could raise the wages of, of your of every employee by $5,681. And, and, and that's- do you, think that would, do you think you'd get more employee productivity by, I don't know, let's say increasing wages by an additional $1,000 a year for five years? Do we you have- you get more productivity versus that or paying one guy 50 million more dollars we have a lot of people where i'd put my money yeah we have a lot of people that listen to our podcast in the tampa orlando bradenton sarasota area we've got a really nice group of people that are listening in michigan and ohio and california it's really starting to take off and i want every one of you to think about this if if you just got fifty six hundred dollars you're a working man or woman somebody gave you fifty six hundred dollar bonus would you turn it down would it motivate you no (laughs) Would, 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 would it motivate you could you pay off some bills i know somebody who's got about a $9,000 college student loan and and they'd like to, that would go a long ways to paying that damn thing off. I mean, yeah, but, but, you know, from a more business strategic standpoint, imagine just taking that money and instead of just giving it as a one-time bonus, because we all know one-time bonuses tend to have the opposite effect on employee productivity. And you just increase pay by $1,000 a year for five years, in addition to what your already scheduled increases are at. Yeah. And when you do that, you know what happens, right? People don't your save that money. They spend it doing something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, so. I, the multiplier effect, the multiplier effect of buying more toothbrushes, toothpaste, diapers, beer, and and uh, ramen noodles is a whole lot more than putting that money into a, a yacht that's sitting in a, in a, ba- in a, in a uh, basin. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's a different way of looking at things. And, you know, unfortunately there's not a lot of discussion about this specific topic inside this industry. Everybody tends to just shy away and think, well, if I, if I could make that, I'd make that. And, you know, unfortunately you kind of have to look at the bigger picture because sometimes big benefits can also have big consequences. Yeah, there's a, there is no doubt that if you take Live Nation and you get somebody out there who is a little more consumer friendly, who has made some real coin, I'll give you an example, uh, Elon Musk would be a good example of this. If you took somebody like Elon Musk and he gets over his hurdles with a Tesla and et cetera, and he says, you know what? The uh, average uh, guy and gal going to a concert, going to these venues, I mean, they pay way too much money. I'm going to help them out creating a new platform, dumping a couple hundred million dollars into reconfiguring, putting the connections together. You would take Live Nation and sink them down and they'd be gone. I mean, it's kind of like what uh, uh, Vince 
McMahon's doing with the NFL. I mean, you know more about that than I do. We'll finish up with that. You know, there is no doubt that the NFL has taken a track that has alienated some people, right? And it has also ingratiated itself to another group of people. But as a result of that, we know that Donald Trump was involved in the old USFL. We know he sued, USFL sued, and he was the face of it. They won an antitrust suit against the NFL, and they gave him $1, okay? So it was, whatever you want to say, that's the story. Then you had McMahon, who did whatever he did, and he had a, a football league. Then from there, it went under. What's he doing now? Yeah, so he's rebooted the XFL, and he's taking a more, as far as I, I've, the things I've read, a more professional approach instead of a more rambunctious rowdy um bad boys type of approach which is what it was in the 90s i believe and from what i read they didn't actually lose a lot of money in the 90s there just wasn't the appetite for that content because the nfl was still very popular i mean it is still very popular but in anyways in the u.s they've stood the xfl back up and i think it's this year that it starts and they have good tv contracts i think abc and um fox they have they have actual like solid um distribution going on for for television so i mean it's kind of interesting that it's it's a you finally will have some competition to the nfl nobody really knows how good it will be as far as the actual players but it, it should be um at a higher caliber than you know what you've seen as far as amateur football stuff has been but in general i think the point is, is that it's you know less political more professional football without the shenanigans that we're all well aware of we don't have to discuss um you know regardless of whether you support the political messages or you're against it um i think there's a lot of people who a want to watch more football and b want to watch football without having to deal with political stuff or innuendo or whatever so anyways it's, it's kind of interesting but regardless of the situation there should be um, I think they're staggering the schedule so that their their supply does not compete with the NFL, which is a smart move. And, uh, you know, because the NFL is only a couple months out of the year, actual playtime. So anyways, it should be interesting. I, I, if they do it right, I can't imagine that they lose money or that they lose uh, or that they don't get a decent audience, especially if it's staggered, because as we all know, everybody's glued to their screens now. So. Well, I think one of the things the uh, XFL and everybody else, I don't care what the industry is, I don't care what the industry is, um, I think people like to see everyday Joe sports. Think of uh, Joe Dirt, that movie, <laughs> just everyday Joe, and think of the movie Rudy. I think people like to see, yeah, man, this guy used to play ball here at school. Look at he's how oh, he's playing. Now it's, I mean, how do you relate to a player? I mean, these they're just completely off the charts. You, you know what I'm saying? People like to root yeah, for the underdog. How, yeah, just the, the skill. And, and, and then, of course, when you consider the compensation level of some of these players, it's like they're just not relatable to most people. Yeah, I understand that. And, and it's like Tiger Woods. I mean, after a while, you know, you just like, you kind of say, I hope this guy loses, right? It's the same thing with Jack oh, yeah, Nicholas, Arnold Palmer. You know, you had, I remember when Lee Trevino came on, you know, and Lee was, uh, I, I don't know if he's Mexican. I think Lee Trevino is Mexican, actually. But it was like, all right, man, this guy's different. He was he was comical. He was funny and everything else. And it was kind of like, um, you know, Ben Hogan had the perfect swing. And then you had Arnold Palmer with the, like the uh, tin cup, um, 
southwestern Texas, you know, goofball swing. You know, he was definitely was different. Then you got the perfect Jack Nicholas swing. And, you know, you kind of rooted for the guys are like, oh, man, this guy's different. How about like, it's like baseball players that throw the uh, a submarine pitch. You know, we, we like watching the Tampa Bay Rays. And every once in a while you see a ball player that a pitcher that how the hell that. They're throwing this from their knees. They're not throwing an overhand pitch. What what's going on here? You kind of root for those guys, and I think the I think that's something that a lot of people out there don't seem to understand. Also, it's the same thing when it comes to employees. We'll tie it back to employees. You know, the little guy needs a break, man. And these 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 hotshot CEOs. I think you're. I'm dead serious on this. I I really I really hope somebody you know there's a movement that kicks in because i sense it out there when guys like me are fed up with executives you know, investment advisors like me are fed up with the executives making this kind of compensation um that means there's things brewing that there's change on the on the horizon there is and the problem it could be really ugly for everybody if we have certain people get into office you know what i'm saying yeah yeah it's it's uh it's it's unfortunate the consolidation and and the whole the whole problem. It's just, it's been left completely unmitigated. Oh, let's wrap this up. That was a really good thing you wrote on that, uh, that thing again. That, that was really good. We'll, uh, let's put this in the show notes, your, your comments in the show notes. And um, that was good. Okay, let's get out of here. This concludes this episode of Connecting Dots. Thank you for listening. Please visit our sponsor, Fixed Cost Financial, the home of fixed cost investing at fixedcostinvesting.com that's fixedcostinvesting.com we got love that will never need to hide love will always rise above whatever comes we will be just fine if i am yours and you are mine take my hand and let's fly away to another galaxy Hold me close, I want to feel your love Together we are free Just be with me Just be with me Just be with me Now we're one with the sun over our heads And at night we'll be the stars we can go any place that we want to I don't care if that's too far Take my hand and let's fly away To another galaxy Hold me close, I want to feel your love Together we are free Just be with me Just be with me just be with me. All rights reserved. Reproduction prohibited without written authorization.